Uh, welcome to our uh, typical Friday morning uh, Ask the Experts session. Um, Steve, I'm not sure if I'm seeing the, I'm not seeing myself on the monitor, so I'm not sure if, you, if there you go. I think I had disappeared for a little bit. That they have the power to make me disappear, which is really, really cool. Uh, <laughs> that's probably a good thing for many people, but uh, welcome. I hope you're enjoying your your coffee this uh, Friday morning. Uh, uh, we've, you know, we're in the midst of the beginning of, of winter and uh, obviously uh, with great concerns about COVID-19, uh, we are in the, in the hot zone right now here in, in this country. Uh, and unfortunately has come back to Connecticut. I think the, Dr. Schreiber will show some, uh, some concerning data for all of us uh, for the next two to three months. But I think he will also share some good news at the end about the vaccine. Uh, and we are getting ready here at Connecticut Children's to uh, uh, vaccinate. We're probably gonna get a Pfizer uh, a product if the FDA approves it, as it is expected that they will be, and the ACIP recommends as, as they uh, undoubtedly will uh, recommend for healthcare providers. We will be getting uh, about a thousand doses of vaccine for the first go around. Shortly thereafter, we should get another thousand from uh, probably Moderna. And the goal really is to have uh, by the end of January to have at least uh, everyone who wants to get it from uh, the healthcare team associated with Connecticut Children's uh, in, and, and all of you who are not part of Connecticut Children's directly, but uh, associated with us uh, through the hospital systems. And I know that uh, Danbury Hospital, uh, Norwalk Hospital and those systems will have vaccine available for team members. So uh, again, the goal will be that by the end of uh, January, everyone hopefully would have gotten at least one dose of the vaccines uh, and we're talking about 28 million people throughout the United States, uh, which is really a remarkable thing. So human ingenuity, a triumph, and there is hope for all of us. There's hope for the for the U.S. and hope for that a, a better spring coming up. But we have to be careful over the next few months. Uh, today, we have uh, three experts. John, uh, who is our, our, our own local Fauci, uh, will be presenting his uh, information up to date. Uh, and then we have Dr. Young and Dr. Akshadi from Pediatric Neurology, who will giving, be giving us an update on the effects of this virus and uh, neurologic, uh, the neurologic effects of the virus in children and adolescents, some of the experience they've had with our own patients, and I think will be very informative. Uh, so with that, I want to pass it on to John, and uh, please enjoy the presentation. The Q&A session will follow, uh, and welcome to all of you who are joining us for Grand Rounds all the way from uh, Western Connecticut. Okay, take care. John, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Juan. I uh, appreciate it. And uh, a word to say all of you out there who are healthcare providers and professionals, uh, thank you for what you do. We're going to have a tough winter, and um, without you and your efforts, um, the community would, would be struggling even more. So thank you for what you do. Um, I think I have a lot to cover today, and I'm going to move fast because I want to hear about the neurology perspective of COVID. It's very important, so I apologize. I'm going to move quickly. Next slide, please. Unfortunately, uh, the United States is in a five alarm fire right now. We just need to be honest about it. Um, we are filling up our ICUs and hospitals. There is no coordinated national response uh, and uh, it's all math. Actually, Dr. Fauci said this, it's all mathematics. You know the R value, you know how many people end up hospitalized, you know if X number of people are infected, how many will be in the ICU and we know how many will die. Uh, it's all mathematics, the numbers are not good. Um, and uh, ideally there should be a national response to this because immunization in the scenario of a five alarm fire is very difficult. It would be easier if we had better mitigation, immunization would go more smoothly. Next. 
So it is what it is. Now, I want to do a deep dive in Connecticut. Um, many of you are from Connecticut. There are surrounding states as well, but this is typical of New England, frankly. Massachusetts is quite similar. Um, our rate now, we have about a 6 to 7% test positivity rate. You may remember over the summer it was less than 1%, and it's probably more than that. Uh, these are the towns that have more than 15 cases per 100,000 of co new cases of COVID. Some of them are in the 30s and 40s. Um, so we are not in a good place. And um, I will tell you that many healthcare professionals have reached out to the governor and asked the governor to ratchet down um, and uh, allow breathing space here so that we can separate people, ratchet things down and give us a break uh, before going to the holidays and the new year, because this is not leading us in a good direction. Next. <coughs> Now, um, we have more cases now per day than we had in the peak of the spring. And this is one of the reasons I think many of the public health personnel in, in the state uh, feel we need a more robust response. And everyone recognizes the economic outcome of ratcheting down. On the other hand, the economic outcome of having thousands of people in hospitals and ICUs is also quite ratcheting down there, the ability of people to interact with each other to try to get these new cases under control. And um, one can hope that if we can sustain this, they will gradually drift down. And this has been driving a lot of the new cases. So uh, here's the United States. This is, again, I, I did this like a day ago and it's already out of date. I mean, we're well over 200,000 cases a day. I mean, I remember talking to you a couple of weeks ago when we were sort of in the below 100 saying, you know, we're gonna be at 200 in a few weeks and we are, and this will go up. It's all mathematics. And this is why it's going to be critical uh, as the new administration assembles their COVID task force to create a national plan and give incentive to governors to begin to create a better mitigating situation. We're not going to get rid of it, but we could level it out and try to sustain a lower rate of new cases so that we can make it through the winter uh, in a better state. So um, uh, you see that it's come down, by the way, and that was the Midwest drifting down. Then you can see Thanksgiving occurred and it's coming up again. So it's going to go up because 6 million people traveled. And I, I can't tell you the number of calls we've gotten this week from people who Uncle Jim came from Tennessee and now he's positive. What do I do? So my suggestion, do not travel for the Christmas and Hanukkah holidays. Stay at home, hunker down. Don't have strangers in the house. I can't tell you any stronger than that. Do not travel. It's not the time to do it. Uh, we are healthcare providers and professionals. We need to lead our communities to understand that travel right now will only exacerbate uh, this problem. Next. Uh, our deaths uh, are up past 2000 a day. I, uh, we predicted this would happen. You can see it's shooting up after Thanksgiving. And uh, in the absence of a plan, uh, that's gonna continue to go up. Now, you may recall that the total deaths in 9-11 on one day were 3,000 uh, approximately, and we're pretty much doing that daily. We have one 9-11 catastrophe every day in the country in terms of mortality. I, I, it boggles the mind. Um, I, uh, again, I, I always hate to show this because each one of these 2,000 are somebody's grandmother or a young kid or uh, people who've loved ones and parents and this and that, and these are all people. and and. Uh, this is a terrible situation and one in which I think uh, it still puzzles me as to why some of um, our political leaders are, are minimizing this. Uh, we, we cannot do that and we need to bring this death rate down. Uh, to me, that is a, a driving force of being a, a public health and a physician. Next. 
Now, there's a lot, I know it was a little bit dark there, but it is where we are. And this is, uh, this is where we are as a country right now, but there's a lot of new work going on. And I'm gonna just touch on a couple of things, chillblains. What the heck are chillblains? And there's some work being done on that next. And uh, in France, if you can go to the next slide, they, uh, no, that's not it. If we can, there you go. Uh, France did a study on this and uh, they went ahead and found every patient and kid with chillblain lesions and then looked for SARS and then biopsied them. And only 30% of the patients actually had evidence of infection with SARS-CoV-2. But um, those who did, and this is the pathology, had a really intense lymphocytic infiltration. It's pretty interesting. So this is an immune response. This is an immune response. It's a lymphocytic infiltration. Next. And what they found was that there's a lot of interferon gamma in these patients. So if you're a chillblain patient on my left, you can see um, there's a lot more interferon gamma level um, uh, than you had in ambulatory COVID or even in very sick COVID. So this is an immune response that's brisk and you know, possible it could be protective, we don't know. Um, but there's, uh, there's more work being done on chillblains uh, and understanding this a little bit better, but that's what I have for you today. And these are data from France. Next. Um, the issue of treatment um, of COVID-19 infection with plasma and monoclonals, I think we've pretty much established in this study, which just came out in the New England Journal, once you have disease, antibody therapy doesn't work. This is where you have infection and pneumonia, they got convalescent plasma, and it was no better than placebo to help severe infection. Uh, so. We knew that in the past that antibody treatment is not nearly as effective as antibody prophylaxis. And this is why the new monoclonals are being designed to be given to patients when they're ambulatory, they're not very sick, uh, before they ever have to have oxygen or in the hospital, and then you have efficacy. So this sort of uh, puts the nail, I think, uh, in that and a treatment of established COVID with antibody therapy is probably not going to be effective. Next. So let's talk vaccines. Um, Juan uh, talked a little bit about this. I want to do a little bit more of a deep dive. It's going to be critical that our community of professionals and healthcare providers, and frankly, whoever else is listening today, that we understand these vaccines um, and we understand their efficacy and safety profile and can speak to our community because there's so much confusing misinformation out there. The Pfizer joint venture vaccine with, with uh, BioNTech in Germany is mRNA that encodes the spike protein. It's in a little bit of a lipid capsule. It was found to be 90% effective in preventing uh, participants from getting infection. That's clinical infection, not asymptomatic infection, clinical infection. And you can see there's 45,000 participants, 42% were diverse, uh, and uh, they evaluated 94 cases in the 43,000 participants. Um, et cetera. And it, it, this is outstanding efficacy on uh, the 90% plus. And the safety uh, were really uh, your arms swollen, you got fever, you had aches and pains. So it was sort of like an influenza vaccine safety profile. But remember, this is very short. This disease has only been in the world for 12 months. But at the moment, there appear to be no serious safety concerns and the efficacy is quite strong for a respiratory vaccine. Uh, these people make antibodies and appear to be protected from severe disease or clinical disease. Next. Now, the way this is the, the, the second vaccine that 
There's also an RNA vaccine in lipid capsule. It's by Moderna. It's, that's an NIH uh, study at a company that partnered on this. And what they found was similar. Uh, they have a very high efficacy in prevention of severe cases and, uh, and um, clinical disease. Uh, it was around 30,000 participants. They had 196 cases, um, 185 of those were in the placebo group and 11 in the vaccine group, giving you an efficacy of 94.1%. In addition, they looked at severe cases and uh, none of the severe cases occurred in the vaccine group. So this is quite good. Um, and uh, there was a death that occurred in the placebo group and they had a variety of age, race, and ethnicity. I, I haven't seen those data. Uh, and so um, this is great. Unfortunately, to date, the detailed data have not been made public. However, they are going to the FDA next. And oh, I do want to review. So, so let's just review how this is working. So when families and parents and community members ask us, we can all say the same thing. Well, this is RNA that encodes the spike protein. It's coded in the lipid, gets injected in your arm. It's taken up by our cells and then our ribosomes use that RNA to make protein. It's very clever. And the, it's spike protein. The spike protein is released out and then we make an immune response. Next, it's taken up by the antigen presenting cells. And then those antigen presenting cells consume the proteins and they chop them up and present them to T cells um, who become memory cells and they remember the spike protein. And then they also stimulate B cells to make antibodies that are neutralizing and prevent the virus from binding to the ACE2 receptor. So this is what's happening. Um, I think it's crystal clear. Um, and this is something we can easily explain uh, to the public. Next. Now the challenge is um, because this is a five alarm fire and frankly from political pressure, there's a concern that the FDA um, uh, perhaps was short circuited or we don't have the data yet. It's been a lot of press releases and it's, I think it's a very legitimate Concern and our job is going to be to look at those data, analyze it, and move ahead so that people hear a clear message from us as we look at the data for efficacy and safety. Next, this was an article in the Washington Post. Um, now, this is the process that's going to occur for emergency use of the Pfizer vaccine. On December 10th, the United States FDA will have a meeting of its Vaccine and Biologic Projects Advisory Committee. Um, and uh, there's also an external committee that's part of that, that has a number of very well-known and, and, and great external scientists who have no stake in this, uh, who can analyze this objectively. The data are presented, it's public domain. I'm gonna show you the website you can go to to watch this or to be involved with this. And the FDA will make the background materials they receive from Pfizer public domain. Uh, it says no later than two business days prior to the meeting. The meeting is scheduled for December 10th. The Moderna vaccine will be reviewed on the December 17th in a similar model of a public domain web released data. Next. So this is a public meeting. There is the website and Elizabeth I think can post it. Uh, and you, you can go look, there's already a FDA thing saying hit this button and you'll be, you'll be able to watch this. Um, and I think uh, there will be review of the data by both internal FDA regulators and external scientists and public health specialists. If the data shows safety and efficacy, which I think is expected at the moment, um, we will need to inform our providers and the general public to enhance the uptake of this vaccine. I think, again, let's look at the data, 
then we can look people in the eye and say, look, we reviewed the data, we went to the meeting, the FDA process is working, the regulatory, they're very robust regulatory process is working and we are comfortable. This will be very important because there's a lot of radio static and the internet and other places. And our job will be to interpret the data and if it's safe and efficacious to tell people it is. Next. So that's the process. Um, I'm gonna to try to be on that. Uh, Dr. Salazar, um, uh, of a number of us will try to uh, be that and make sure we can get an executive summary of the data for everyone. Now, there are some issues with the vaccine. We don't know yet whether it prevents transmission. This is a quote from the previous FDA commissioner, um, Margaret Hamburg. We don't know if people can become infected and transmit the disease um, with vaccination. We don't think whether you get subclinically infected and could infect your grandmother, we don't know yet. And so for that reason, it's gonna be very important that even after we're immunized this winter, we wear masks and we follow all of the physical distancing and all of the rules that we currently have in the community and in our hospitals and clinics. They are not going to go away because we don't understand fully whether the vaccine could prevent transmission. We know it will prevent disease so far. It looks very good at that. But whether we can get subclinically infected and transmit it, we don't know yet. It's gonna be very important to maintain all our public health measures until the population is immunized later this winter and spring. Next. So even with immunization, we have several months of high community spread until the population is immunized and we can achieve herd immunity. Expect that we will need to continue to use careful use of PPE and physical distancing at work and in the community. And even if you are immunized, you don't throw your goggles away. Everything's gonna stay the same. This is an extra barrier for you as a professional, much like as a super PPE, that will prevent you from getting infection or severe disease, but we have to be very careful because we're not yet sure about transmission, even if you're immunized. Next. So um, as uh, Juan said, uh, we are going to be allocated about a thousand doses of the Pfizer vaccine, assuming the FDA gives it emergency licensure next week um, or the week after. We're not sure when or how long the day will take for them to analyze the data. Uh, and there'll be two doses and um, we will, uh, hospitals and health systems will also have a catchment area to immunize healthcare providers in their catchment area and nursing homes and primary care, et cetera. And the modern, Moderna vaccine will also uh, come in January. So we'll have two vaccines available and this is going to roll forward this winter. We cannot mix and match the vaccines, however. If you're a Moderna person, that's what you're going to get. If you're a Pfizer person, that's what you're going to get. Next. So here we are, the good, bad, the ugly, Dr. Salazar, that's the good, the bad, the ugly in Japanese. Okay, I want you to know how popular this movie was across the world. I know you haven't watched it yet, but perhaps you can watch it in Japanese. There it is. Um, our epidemic has spread all over the country. It's a five alarm fire. Anyone who denies that um, is incorrect. The facts uh, and the math show that. Hospital capacity may be overwhelmed in multiple states, particularly if people choose to travel again for the Christmas, Hanukkah, and other holidays this winter, New Year's. That's not a good thing to do. The USA is gonna sustain a very significant increase in COVID-19 related deaths in the coming weeks. Some are saying it could be up to 4,000 a day. Um, that's you know, a 9-11 every day. Uh, I think it's uh, quite remarkable and one in which we are committed to try to bring down in the coming weeks. 
The politics misinformation and pandemic fatigue by the public has prevented national common sense public health measures. Uh, we are just going to have to do this to settle it down. Um, and I think my hope is, is this dawning on many of our political leaders that we're going to have to do this. The good news and the exciting news is that science has brought us multiple vaccines that appear to have remarkable efficacy in prevention of significant infection and illness with this pathogen. This is breakthrough work. It's very exciting and it shows that we will conquer this this spring and summer. We also believe that FDA emergency approval of two vaccine candidates is likely in the next several weeks. Uh, thank you for your attention. And now we wanna learn about uh, the neurologic effects of COVID and I'll hand this off. Thank you. Konnichiwa, Shriver-sama. <laughs> so uh, thank you, John. And uh, I'm gonna move on to uh, Dr. Jula Aksadi, who's the head of pediatric neurology. Uh, uh, who's a, a wonderful physician who's done incredible work with uh, gene therapy for patients with SMA. But today he's going to talk about uh, neurological morbidity and COVID-19. So, Jula, go ahead. Good morning. Uh, COVID-19 related disease is very complex and it affects the uh, nervous system, central and peripheral nervous system. Just to recap, the virus is an RNA virus. Uh, and uh, which has no uh, coding sequence for reverse transcriptase, so it's not integrating. Um, it, it uses an ACE2 re uh, receptor, which is very important for the tropism of the virus. Um, we have some evidence that actually it does have some neurotropism, although it's, it's not uh, regarded as a uh, highly neurotropic virus. Um, so the pathology depends on how of the distribution of the ACE2 receptor. And there is some evidence that actually the receptor is present in the brain particle in the cerebellum and the thalamus. Um, can uh, the virus invade the uh, nervous system? So most of the neurological symptoms are actually not primary in, uh, related to the invasion of the uh, uh, brain or uh, peripheral nervous system, but related to the secondary uh, effects of the, the general cardio uh, respiratory disease, hypoxia, and so on. Um, the direct invasion usually happens through the um, endothelial cells in the vasculature through a process called transcytosis. This may result in encephalopathy, encephalitis, meningitis. Not like uh, a herpes virus, it is no evidence that uh, the virus actually gets into the nervous system, such as the limbic system, through the olfactory nerve. So the pathology um, of the uh, uh, viral infection in the nervous system related to its cause uh, for vasculitis, which can cause headaches, confusion, uh, edema, and intracranial bleeding. Um, uh, Cholgalopathy um, of the blood um, causes uh, cerebral venous uh, thrombosis and stroke which uh, may happen in adults, actually 1.5% uh, of the hospitalized patients. The other pathological phenomenon is the cytokine surge, uh, particle interleukins, uh, interferons, and uh, which cause uh, edema multi-organ failure, but particle interleukin uh, surge has been related to seizures. So um, the cytokine uh, surge particularly um, um, presents with uh, encephalitis and seizures, and it can be with and without fever. The encephalopathy and hallucinations can uh, be a first sign of the infection, particularly in children, 
but the other secondary effect can be related to multi-organ failure. Just to mention that I took care of a, a child recently who was autistic, had never had seizure, and uh, presented with afibrile seizure and was uh, COVID-19 positive with just slight congestion. Um, meningoencephalitis uh, can happen with or without respiratory disease, and most uh, likely we should consider this if a child has a seizure or encephalopathy. If you do a study, the CSF shows some uh, lymphocytosis. In children, um, encephalitis, particularly in, in neonates, can be the first sign of uh, a manifestation of uh, COVID-19 disease, and this has to be uh, considered. It can be in, uh, present in afebrile uh, seizures as well as febrile seizures. The COVID-related parainfectious uh, disease complication, neurological complication, uh, like many other uh, viral agents, can be Guillain-Barré syndrome, mainly axonal type, ADM, transfer myelitis. But most of these are based on case reports. We don't have really good epidemiological data for this. Um, in generally, in uh, the large population of, uh, of COVID-19 uh, patients, ischemic lesions uh, and, uh, can, um, from autopsy materials, can be seen in a large number of uh, disease uh, 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 neurologically affected patients. And the pathology shows some mainly inflammatory changes, such as microglia activation, cytotoxic lymphocytes. It's interesting that it is not easy to find, actually, the viral particle from autopsy materials. Uh, there was a Yale study suggested that uh, it was difficult to find the viral RNA. Um, but other studies shows only about 20% of the autopsy materials in the brain showed uh, the evidence of viral RNA. The question is, uh, do RNA actually present in the neuronal cells or in vasculature? If we go for uh, overall statistics, what, what is uh, uh, promising for uh, uh, somewhat, and, and it's a good news for pediatricians, that... Um, Pediatric population is underrepresented in this disease compared to uh, the whole population of U.S., uh, which comprise 20% of the to total population, but only 8-9% of the children um, get uh, positive with uh, diseases based on the CDC data. Uh, the latest um, WHO data shows that in the U.S. Uh, there were 13 uh, million cases, and only 1 million, uh, uh, among that, 1 million positive children. The disease, uh, when it affects children, can be uh, most of the time moderate, uh, uh, not severe, um, uh, and uh, the pediatric hospitalization rate is, is between uh, uh, 2 to 4%. The total death in the U.S. is now more than 260,000 people, but so far as the latest data from AAP, um, about 133 uh, patients were uh, reported uh, as a pediatric death, which is much underrepresented, uh, uh, which is a good news again for us. Um, th there's very little data available on, uh, on neurological uh, statistics, particularly in children. Um, it, it, Dr. Young will elaborate a little bit more on the statistics uh, from the study that was a, a meta-analysis. And um, in general, um, neurological complications uh, present between 
7 to 13 percent of all patients who are hospitalized, but we don't have much better data in the pediatric population. I, I would like to um, uh, introduce Dr. Young and give him the podium uh, for the rest of the presentation. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, we have three speakers this morning. I hope uh, John uh, doesn't mean that he's the good, that Jula's the bad, and that I'm the ugly. <laughs> but uh, real pleasure to speak with you this morning. This is a uh, meta-analysis of uh, 623 children who tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, the vast majority had no neurologic symptoms. About 15% had mild symptoms of headache and myalgia, and uh, just about 1% had severe neurologic complications that we'd like to talk about today. Very different if you look at the children who are admitted to hospitals for MISC. This is a study from Great Ormond Street where they had 27 cases and uh, about 20% of the children had headaches, mental status changes, brainstem cerebellar signs or weakness. Note that uh, in the situations where they were able to obtain CSF, the PCR was negative. They also noted splenial lesions that are unexplained in four of the patients. Uh, and again, raises the question of whether there's particular sensitivity to that tiny portion of the nervous system. Again, the CSF PCR was negative. Stroke <clears throat> regularly occurs in adults for reasons related to age, uh, atherosclerosis. It's unusual in children, but certainly can happen as you can see here. Great description of uh, MISC in uh, this young man reported in the New York Times, uh, Jack McMorrow. He said, pain was flowing through me like lightning. And it was interesting because his biology teacher visited him in the hospital or by Skype. And he said, you know, it's a good thing you told me about the heart so I could have a discussion with the pediatric cardiologist. Well, you certainly can get vasculitis in the brain as well. And the red arrows in the uh, MRI point to the beating and uh, dilatation of the vessels uh, in the uh, carotid arteries and anterior cerebral arteries. Another child with arteriopathy and stroke, 12-year-old boy, who interestingly had positive PCR. And again, the uh, two white arrows indicate the swelling and beating in the MCA proximal middle cerebral artery. So overall, uh, children's blood vessels are better able to withstand a viral attack than our adults, but they still certainly can develop vasculitis in both the coronary and cerebral arteries. Seizures, uh, certainly they occur. Uh, in 50 children admitted to Columbia Children's Hospital in New York, they had an uh, incidence of 6%. And in a meta-analysis of 380 children with severe COVID, it was about 3%. 
seizures as uh, are multifactorial. Uh, if they have a seizure and a positive PCR, it doesn't mean that the COVID caused it. There were a couple children who had uh, status epilepticus uh, of a, for a variety of different conditions. The virus uh, has been found in mice post-mortem as well as in post-mortem human tissue, but is not neurotropic to the extent that we see in HSV and in the CT scan, you can actually see the ongoing necrosis of the frontotemporal regions. Similarly in rabies and polio uh, encephalitis, there's direct invasion of selected portions of the nervous system. So this remains an outstanding uh, question. Meningitis uh, may occur. Again, be careful. Here's a 22-year-old woman with meningitis who uh, turned out to be COVID positive, but also positive for Neisseria meningitidis. So it can be true, true, and unrelated. Guillain-Barre syndrome, talking about post-infectious syndrome. His legs were not working and my brother had to carry him to the car. Young college student. In the uh, MRI, you can see the swelling of the uh, distal elements of the spinal cord and the uh, cytoalbuminologic dissociation with a protein of 316. Another eight-year-old boy with Guillain-Barre, again, you can see the cauda equina and a protein of 620 in the uh, CSF. Interestingly, again, he had uh, negative PCR, uh, and this is likely a post-infectious condition. We, uh, for those of us who are old enough, we remember the 1976 swine flu epidemic, and the Times said this is the virus that is going to uh, bring back the pandemic of 1918. Uh, the president rolled up his sleeve and was one of the first individuals to get vaccinated against swine flu, and looking back in the mirror, it caused an excess number of cases of Guillain-Barre. The uh, president said, or someone said, it was an election year. Transverse myelopathy. Well, this slowed down the uh, AstraZeneca trials because one of their uh, vaccine study recipients developed transverse myelopathy. And the only case I could find of transverse myelopathy in COVID-19 in children was a three-year-old Navajo girl who lived in a large multi-generational family. The family tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. And uh, three weeks later, she developed pleocytosis in the CSF, had a positive uh, PCR, and eventually went on to develop myomalacia and quadriparesis. I show this uh, slide with some uh, feeling because my career began in the Indian Health Service many years ago where I met my wife. She was teaching and I was a young uh, pediatrician uh, working with the Navajo. The uh, COVID-19 has certainly uh, had a tremendous effect upon our Native Americans 
they are disproportionately affected by this uh, epidemic because of their housing situation, because of frequent lack of water and electricity on large portions of the reservation. And so I think we have to remember that even in Brookline, Mass, the infection rate might be 1%, but five miles away in Chelsea, it's over 10%. And so there are disparities as we uh, face this uh, condition. Um, to, to summarize, severe neurologic complications in children, about 1%. If you have MISC, certainly it's going to be considerably greater that arteriopathy occurs both in the heart as well as in the brain, that seizures occur but have multiple causes, and that there is demyelination both of the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system. And the last slide is the long haul syndrome, because even after we have a vaccine and we see that bending and flattening of the curve, there will be both adults and children struggling with COVID-19 and its months of aftermath. And in the uh, picture, you see a young adolescent, peak of health, playing basketball, and then relegated to a wheelchair. Some people have compared this to uh, PTSD, uh, having COVID-19 and the fear and anxiety that goes with it. Well, thank you for your attention and I'll turn this back to uh, Dr. Schreiber. He's been a tremendous support uh, to me as a school physician and uh, answers emails within 24 hours. So if you have questions, I urge you to get them out to him. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Rick and, and Jula and John. And uh, so if you guys, if, if both of you could hang out closer to the podium, but properly masked and six feet apart, um, we have a, a number of questions, and, and welcome to all 222 people that actually have joined this uh, morning's Ask the Experts. I think it's one of our all-time high uh, number. Um, all right, uh, we, we have a lot of questions here, so get ready. Um, John, could you talk about the CDC's new quarantine policy, uh, and you know why did it change? Are you okay with it? And uh, whoever sent this says you're amazing, so just to give you that uh, as well. So go ahead, John. Thank you. Uh all of you out there are amazing. As I said, you know, thank you for what you do. The people in the front lines, primary care, whoever out there, school nurse, um, thank you. Um, we're going to look back on this, and I think all of the healthcare providers um, have, have done a great job through a very difficult situation. Now, the quarantine has changed for several reasons. First off, if you look at the data, and I think I showed this to you guys probably a month ago, um, if you look at when people get sick, the majority get sick in the first five or six, seven days um, after exposure, vast majority. And if you look around day 10, it's a very, very small percent that get sick from day 10 to 14. It's not zero, but it's very small. In light of compliance nationally, and frankly, in terms of getting healthcare providers back to work, the CDC looked at these data and felt that it would be um, more efficacious to move to a 10-day quarantine that would capture the vast majority of people who might be infectious um, and uh, improve compliance and frankly, get healthcare providers back to work faster. And remember, we wear masks. The likelihood, um, again, is very low for risk um, in, in that scenario. So, that, so that's where the 10 days came from. Now, 
There is another suggestion about seven days with testing. And I will say Dr. Salas and, our, and I have looked at Connecticut Children's and we've decided not to use that routinely. We will use it if there's an urgent reason to get somebody back to work. But at day seven, um, there, if you look at the curve of when people get sick, there's still between seven and 10. There are some people who will get ill in that window. And uh, testing will help uh, rule that out, but it won't, won't completely rule it out. And so uh, what we've done is we've reserved the seven day with PCR testing uh, for very urgent reasons to get people back to work. But we're recommending routinely that the 10 day quarantine instead of the 14 is reasonable and we've embraced the CDC change. Next a question, please. Thanks, John. Uh, Dr. Kamides asked, uh, in regard to uh, chillblains, chillblains, I don't know, usually this is related to exposure to cold. Are you suggesting that even if uh, that even if there's an immune response, there's an immune response and not due to cold damage? Um, at least in the COVID patients that they looked at in France, um, it appeared to be, uh, yes, it's related to cold, but it appeared to be an immune response somehow linked to the viral infection and it was lymphocytic infiltration. And we already know that there's some changes in the number of lymphocytes with COVID-19. So um, the early implications are that in addition to being a response to cold in COVID positive patients, chillblains could be an immune response. Doc, uh, Dr. Aksadi, somebody's asking, what is ADEM and can you comment on the association to COVID-19? acute uh, disseminating encephalomyelitis. Similar, we see with other um, viral-related or mycoplasma-related illnesses. This is a mainly a, a, a post-infectious or para-infectious inflammatory process in the brain. Thank you. Uh, John, there are three questions that I can think I can lump into one. The, the question is, if you've had COVID-19, you still need to get vaccinated, um, and and so that and then likewise, if you if you um, if you get vaccinated, can you spread the virus? So those are the two questions that I lumped in here. Well, let's let, let's do the let's answer the latter one first. If you get vaccinated, could you be subclinically infected and spread the virus? We don't know, and uh, don't, I don't know the answer to that. I, we do know today both the Moderna and the um, Pfizer vaccine will prevent clinical disease and severe disease for sure. So I don't know the answer to that. It's one of the reasons we are recommending very strong as is the CDC and everyone, even if you are immunized, you wear a mask, you physically distance, uh, all of the same precautions that we are doing because we have a non-immune population still out there and we don't want to inadvertently spread it to them. So right now we don't know it's possible. And so we have to be careful. Um, the, the, First part of the question, Juan, was uh, if you have if you've had COVID nineteen, uh, do you need to be vaccinated? You know, um, we don't know the answer to that, but the answer is we will be vaccinating people who may have been positive. Remember, the data suggests that you're immune from three to six months. I think the CDC is using a ninety day period. So what we don't want to do is have people who had COVID, you know, six months ago in April not get immunized and then be susceptible and get disease. So we don't know enough, but right now we would just immunize um, regardless of COVID history because of the potential waning immunity and we want our healthcare workforce to be immune. Great, thanks. Uh, Rick, what, what is this long haul syndrome? It seems like we're all suffering from that now. So can you clarify? <laughs> what is long haul syndrome? Uh, I think uh, I'll call in Hank Fader who, uh, loves to talk about the prolonged effects of Lyme disease 
for the children who get infectious mononucleosis and uh, drop out of college. I think it's still being uh, worked out exactly what it is, whether this is part psychological or whether it's where there's a neurological basis for it. Uh, we've had uh, post-mono syndrome uh, for decades and it's still not clear whether this is infectious or para-infectious uh, para or whether it's psychological. And we struggle with it, but certainly we've all seen uh, young people who were functioning at 100% uh, develop a viral infection, sometimes defined and sometimes undefined, and uh, are uh, unable to return to their activities. So more, more to follow is the, the answer to that. We don't know yet. Uh, call Hank Fader. Hank Fader syndrome. Okay, but we're not going to call it the Hank Fader syndrome yet. Okay, very good. You know, you know um, Juan, I, I want to add to Dr. Young's comments. Juan, it was a great talk, and I really appreciate it. And it actually crystallized some thoughts for me about immunization. When you look at the side effects of the disease that he showed and the percent with neurologic, and, and if you have millions and millions of people infected, there's gonna be a lot of downstream morbidity from this viral infection. And it is not, not a good thing. It, it, it affects the brain um, as he showed us the data. So, and that gets to the issue of immunization, you know, even if they're you know, one in millions chance of my, mild side effects, it's tamping down on this disease will prevent millions of people from morbidity from this virus as you saw the data he presented. Um, so I think it actually helped crystallize that thought for me um, and it's, one of the things we don't think about, we think about death, but the morbidity from this disease is very significant and it's affecting millions of people and an immunization will prevent that. I agree. Uh, John, there are, there are a number of questions about from the pediatricians in our community, whether they will be, whether they will have access to COVID-19 vaccines for Connecticut Children's or others, uh, other sites. Can you comment on that? Yeah, well, the short answer is you will be immunized. The long answer is at the moment, the first allocation of vaccine that Connecticut Children's got is only 975 doses. We have 2000 employees. So we will be immunizing our frontline hospital people first. Um, each uh, hospital system, uh, the state has allocated vaccine and their catchment areas for each hospital system to include nursing homes and primary care. And so you may find that if you live in a region far from Hartford, that your health system in that area has the vaccine that will be given to you. So the short answer is you will be immunized. The long answer is it may be not this first round. It might be second round uh, and it may result in be relying on the hospital system that's closest to your practice. Yeah. And just to clarify, we're getting 975 dosages once the FDA approves it. Uh, the first batch is from Pfizer. Uh, Moderna's uh, approval will follow there shortly, shortly thereafter, and then the, the state will probably be getting another allocation from Moderna. Um, I, so I can, I'm, I'm fairly confident that uh, in, at the end of the day, we'll be able to vaccinate all our healthcare providers within the hospital. And then, uh, and that, that includes the ambulatory settings associated with Connecticut Children's Medical Center. And as more vaccine becomes available, uh, obviously members of our CIN uh, through our system or through the hospitals, uh, but healthcare providers will be immunized uh, and it's just a timing issue. Uh, John, uh, the, the question from, uh, from Julie uh, V. Hill at UConn, uh, does, do you think the governor will shut down the state again and only leave essential services open? Did we lose him? I can't tell you. Can you hear me now? 
I think the governor shut uh, muted, muted you. Yeah, yeah, right. I can't tell you what the state government. Uh, Massachusetts is in, uh, in some sense, in a worse state uh, condition right now. Uh, so I doubt a full shutdown will occur. I, I can tell you, though, that um, I would be shocked if they don't ratchet down some of the permissions that have been given. Um, and I, my advice would be anybody at risk, um, this is worse than it was in the spring, hunker down, stay in your house, get things delivered. It's the same advice we gave back in the spring. If you're an at-risk elderly or you have medical problems, uh, don't go out right now. It's common sense. Uh, if you're healthy and low risk, don't travel and, and acquire the vaccine, uh, the uh, disease and give it to somebody inadvertently and create even more of a cycle of public health disaster. So I don't, I don't think the country's going to shut down. I don't think you need to. I think we need to mitigate. You know where it's spreading. It's spreading in big events or restaurants where people take their masks off. And, you know, we can modulate our public health response based on the highest risk areas and, and create a more robust model that doesn't involve a full shutdown. Uh, from Richard Segouls, as in earlier sessions, you described several uh, broad groups of vaccine types, mRNA, DNA, adenovirus carrier protein. Do you feel at this point there are major pros and cons of getting one type of vaccine or the other, assuming they might all be approved? So um, it's a good question right now. And again, this is my opinion because the data presented haven't been full yet. So I, I can't answer all those things. The two RNA vaccines, the data that were released by the companies, and we'll have more soon, next week we're gonna have a lot more data, um, showed a, a great safety profile. Um, you know, People got flu-like symptoms for a day after the second dose, uh, but there were really, as far as I can tell right now, there've been no severe side effects and it's 30, 70,000 people, between, almost 100,000 people between two different vaccines, pretty good. And the efficacy is fantastic for a respiratory virus vaccine. So that's what we have. Let's look at the data on the 10th and the 17th, make sure it's good. And the FDA will do the same thing. And if it is licensed, I think the process is working. And I know everyone's worried about that because we've had a number of agencies in the national government that have not been working optimally. Right now, it looks like the FDA is back where they used to be and they're working optimally. It's a robust process. We'll watch it. Let's see what, let's see what happens, okay? The AstraZeneca vaccine, the adenovirus vector, and, and Dr. Young, I think, showed there've been a couple of bad outcomes. Um, uh, there was a transverse myelitis in England. There was another bad outcome in Brazil. I don't remember what it was. And Brazil halted that study. So, um, and adenovirus is extremely immunoreactive. It just is. It just causes a very robust immune response on its own. And even though it's a chimpanzee adenovirus, um, there's some concern that there'd be a very aggressive immune response against the adenovirus itself. So I don't know the answer to that right now. I would want to see more data from the AstraZeneca study. Now, there's a third type of uh, vaccine, which is the recombinant spike protein from Novavax. That's in phase three. I've not seen very similar to the hepatitis B vaccine. It's been made the same. My bet will be it's going to have a similar safety profile to the RNA vaccines because it's spike protein. You probably get sick after the second dose and then do fine. So um, I don't know, though, I haven't seen those data. My suspicion will be that we're going to have three vaccines come the spring. I bet you will have the Novavax spike protein. I bet you we're going to have two RNA vaccines. I don't know what's going to happen to the adenovirus vaccine. So I think we're going to have multiple vaccine platforms in the spring. And look at influenza. We have a couple of different companies making the injectable. We have Flumist. We have several different platforms for influenza. It works fine. And I think that's probably where we're going to end up with um, SARS-CoV-2.
Thank you, John. Uh, there was a question that I can clarify that uh, people are asking if we have a thousand doses of the vaccine, does that mean we can only vaccinate 500? The answer is no. That's the first batch. We will get a matching batch from Pfizer for four weeks later. So it's in fact 975 people. That's the way these things are going to be rolled out. So we're not going to hold it back for having the two dosages in-house. They will be delivered later. Um, uh, Jula, for, there's a question here about uh, clotting issues with COVID-19. And, and, you know, sadly, we have seen many individuals who've had strokes uh, more in the older population. Uh, uh, can you comment on that, the risk of a stroke in, a, in pediatrics or, or young adult uh, related to COVID-19? Um, it is well known in, in the adult uh, COVID uh, uh, patient population that there's a good portion of uh, uh, patients had stroke uh, uh, around the 5% uh, range. Um, in, in, in uh, hospitalized patients. Unfortunately, in a pediatric uh, population, uh, we don't have good statistics and it's all anecdotal uh, case reports or, or published case reports. So we don't know the exact risk. It, it happens, uh, but, but uh, of course, uh, the rate is very low. Yeah, and then similarly, there was a question about it. Any information about factor, factor five laden and clotting issues with COVID-19? Any guidance, prophylaxis, especially pediatrics? Yes, uh, we don't have uh, any data on factor Leiden particularly. John, go ahead. Uh, Juan, I have a slide on this that we um, we ended up skipping. Elizabeth, I don't know if you want to pull that up. Do you remember that slide that was very quickly was thrombolytic thrombolytic agents and COVID? Is there a chance you can pull that slide up? Well, they're pulling it up. Can you comment on the safety? What do we know about the safety of the, of the Pfizer vaccine? For women in childbearing years who may have children in the next two to three years, are there any long-term term effects? Um, you know, it's the um, disease no. is 12 months old, so we have 12 months data. Um, I think it's not being licensed. I, I would be shocked if it's licensed for pregnant women right now. We don't have any data on that, and I know they're starting to look at that. And it will not be licensed for children under the age of 12 because no children have been studied. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll break to this. So. Uh, treatment of prothrombotic COVID-19 induced disease. This came out of JAMA last week. And um, these are the guidelines because there's, at least in the adult population, we have no pediatric data. The adult population, there's a lot of thrombotic type disease and, and they're suggesting low molecular weight heparin and, and, and other um, interventions um, in hospitalized um, uh, COVID patients, not in non-hospitalized. So uh, and, you know, again, uh, to um, Dr. Scotty's point, we do not have data in children. These are the adult data, and these are the American College of Chest Physicians recommendations for antithrombotic therapy. All right, so um, thank you, Elizabeth, for putting that up. I appreciate it. Um, we have time for a couple of questions from Jenny Schwab. What about vaccine safety for children? When do you think we may, have, we may start vaccinating kids and, and which vaccine? Yeah, so um, the, the vaccine companies are starting children now. Uh, I just saw that Pfizer and Moderna are both uh, beginning to enroll smaller children, but I don't think under seven is what I saw. So I, I think it's going to be summer before we have a vaccine that's licensed for children. We just don't have the data yet. Um, and remember, um, there's good reason for that. Small children don't seem to commonly get severe disease. They do. It's not zero, but it's much lower than adults. Uh, so I would say by the summer, um, I'm optimistic there'll be a vaccine that'll be licensed for younger children and we'll start using it. I don't know when we're going to get down to babies and I don't know when there'll be enough data on pregnant women. 
Perfect. Uh, Jula, this is a, a very personal question. You participated in a clinical trial. I think it was a Moderna trial. Um, can you, uh, we don't know which one you got. They haven't told you, but, but uh, I, I think you know which one you got. Uh, I think Dr. Young also participated in that. So thank you for your service in allowing us to, you know, have your part of those trials, which is really remarkable. Uh, Jula, any side effects after the second dose of whatever you got? For first of all, the reason I participated in, in back in August because I felt that the science behind this RNA vaccination is is very strong. Being a researcher in the past for gene therapy, I did uh, inject a DNA RNA into the muscle of uh, animals and and uh, did a study, and I knew that. This has a really good scientific rationale, and I was very uh, confident about the potential uh, lack of serious side effects uh, from this vaccine. Um, I, I hate to break, uh, you know, the clinical trial secrets, and and but um, certainly um, I had some reaction um, after even the first injection. I had some swelling and and uh, redness, and um, after the second, it, it felt like a little flu for about a day. I managed myself with uh, Tylenol Motrin, and after that, it was just uh, uh, no uh, other side effects. So I felt good after that. I'm, I'm hopeful that actually I got, got the real stuff, but who knows? And Dr. Young, maybe uh, I can ask you the same question. Uh, you, you participated in this. I admire that. So why did you participate in something you didn't know anything about? Well, my chief said he, uh, <laughs> my chief gave me the telephone number to uh, call at Moderna. And they said, we're about to close the uh, study, so you better hurry up and get it. And then she added, um, but if you're too late for the Moderna study, we have a Johnson & Johnson study that you can enroll in. Oh, and, and, and did you have any side effects? Every day after the shot, I, I kept hoping that I would have some lymphadenopathy. I felt nothing. So okay. as, uh, I, I'm fairly sure that they gave me a quite adequate dose of sodium chloride. <laughs> Very good. All right. Uh, John Shriver, any last comments before we close? Uh, no. Again, uh, I want to thank the community for your participation today. And thank you for what you do. Have safe holidays. I think we, we will see you again before the holidays. But uh, please reconsider your travel plans and let's all hunker down and uh, we will get through this winter and uh, we're going to have a bright summer moving forward. So again, thank you for your participation today. Thank you, John. Thank you, Rick and Julia. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, fantastic session. We couldn't answer all your questions. We'll get to them as soon as we can. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you on Tuesday for Grand Rounds uh, here at Connecticut Children's or uh, next Friday for the next uh, session. So thank you, everyone. Have a safe weekend. Please use your mask, social distance, don't party too hard, and we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.